Well, how many would rather be here tonight than in the hospital with both legs in traction? All right, good, good. Well, glad you're here and not there. And I uh, appreciate that good song. I think that kind of goes along with the theme of what I want to preach tonight. And I like it when the Holy Spirit kind of orchestrates those things a little bit. And I want to preach tonight about really the topic of sanctification a little bit. So if you turn in your Bible, please, to John 17. John 17. Now, if you are a student of the Bible and you're trying to learn more about the Bible, uh, recognize that John 17 is a very important chapter. And it is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So it's not very long. So I think some people think, uh, man, you have to pray really long if you're really praying. In fact, tonight for the offertory, we heard Sweet Hour of Prayer. And that's a great song, but I think that... Uh, you know, sometimes we say the hour of, so it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to pray for 60 minutes, right? I think some people think that, like, all right, ready, go. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't talk to my wife that way. We don't go on a date and I say, all right, look, let's go. All right, you know, and so I think it's wonderful if you can pray for, for 60 minutes. Uh, I, I remember I went to an all-night prayer meeting once, and man, I was praying, I was a teenager, went to an all-night prayer meeting. We were going to pray from midnight till 6 in the morning. Man, I was praying and praying and praying. Oh, I was praying and praying and praying. And I looked at my watch and prayed for 15 minutes, you know. And I thought, man, we got to go all the way to 6. This is crazy. I think I went in the corner and went to sleep or something. But anyhow, uh, you, you know, this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. And can you imagine listening to Jesus pray? Could you imagine that? In fact, it must have been pretty spectacular because his disciples would listen to him pray and they, they one time said, you know, John taught his disciples to pray and we listen to you pray. And when we pray and you pray, it is way different. So Lord, teach us to pray. And that's when he said, well, here's, here's a good outline for you. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we know that as the Lord's Prayer, really the model prayer, right? So here, though, is really the Lord's Prayer. That's really what this chapter is. We can listen to Jesus pray. And I'm going to just take a few verses, because obviously there's no way we could look at all 26 verses tonight. I think you would hate me after that, because uh, you want to go home at some point. But let's stand together, and we're just going to read a handful of these verses. One verse in particular is very familiar if you've been around the Bible for a while. Look at verse 16 together, John 17, verse 16. It says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You might recognize that verse. That's been used a lot. Verse 18, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified, through the truth. I want to preach to you tonight about the Christianization of the Christian. I want to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you help me to preach tonight. I definitely need you. I want to thank you for the joyful music that we've heard, uh, this music that's ministered to our spirit and prepared us to hear your word. I thank you for the great effort that this church has obviously put into this week. Many invitations have been passed out. Many prayers have been offered. Uh, the uh, preparation of music has been evident. The attendance has been strong. And I want to thank you for all of those elements. But tonight, we are asking that the Holy Spirit would meet with us. We want to, as these young ladies sang, know you more. 
We want to be like you. And I pray that you would help us tonight. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Appreciate you standing. Well, Monday was Columbus Day, also known as Indigenous Peoples Day. All right, so I don't want to offend anybody at all. Uh, but if you know anything about uh, Christopher Columbus, somebody designated a Christopher Columbus Award. Uh, this is what this award entails, the Christopher Columbus Award. Somebody said this, This award goes to those who, like Columbus, when they set out to do something, don't know where they are going or how to get there. When they arrive, they don't know where they are, and when they return, they don't know where they've been. You ever felt that way before? Yeah? Yeah? I think most Christians feel that way. You say, what do you mean? I think most Christians don't know where they are and don't really know where they're going. Now, I'm not talking about heaven. I think we've done a pretty good job of that in Christendom. You understand tonight, that's who I'm speaking to. I'm speaking to saved people here tonight. I think most of us know we're going to heaven, right? I, I mean, I, I think we've kind of got that settled pretty good among Christian folk. I think in churches like this that are evangelistic in their mindset, I know that you have a missions-minded church. I, I know that you have a... a, a, a evangelistic oriented church and so because of that the question is often asked if you died today are you hundred percent sure you'd go to heaven we don't want you to have a hope so salvation we want you to have a no so salvation and we, we talk about that we might speak to our kids about that and one thing we've got down real good is that people are I mean you're saved do you know you're saved if you don't know you're saved you can know let me show you how and we, we, we work hard at that and rightfully so that's a good thing but I think what has happened is in, in modern American Christianity, I think a lot of people know they are saved. But other than that, they don't really know where they are or where they're going. It's kind of like, I've got this thing, but what do I do with it? I mean, I've got this great gift of salvation, but where am I going with this? And, and if I knew where I was going, I, I really wouldn't know how to use it to get there. And, and I think a lot of people feel that way. Now, the most popular name today, I've already used it many times for believers, the most popular name today for believers is Christian. But did you know that it's a name that's only used three times in the entire New Testament? Now, I'm not saying we should throw that name out the, out the window. I, I understand it, but it was only used three times in the entire New Testament. A more commonly used name in the New Testament is this name right here, Saint. Now, what's interesting is most people I know, I've even said this, and I'm sure you have too, well, I'm no saint. You ever said that? Well, if you're a Christian, if you're born again, yes, you are. Now, I know that we, when we say, I'm no saint, we're trying to say this, yeah, I'm not perfect. I know that's the context in which we're trying to use that, but that's a very common name used in the New Testament for believers is the word saint. And if you study the etymology of that word, it's closely related to this word right here, sanctify, sanctify. Now that word sanctify just simply means set apart, set apart. Now I want you to understand, when we talk about tonight, I'm, I'm going to give several definitions through the course of this sermon, but when we're talking about being sanctified, that just means that we are set apart from sin and we are devoted to God's use. Set apart from sin and devoted to God's use. For example... Here's some examples of some sanctified things in the Bible. Uh, for instance, God sanctified the Sabbath day. 
Now, we know, if you're, if you're familiar, you, you probably recognize this, that the Sabbath day in the Old Testament is not Sunday, it's Saturday. And God rested from his work of creation, not because he was tired, but because he set a precedent for man. Work six days from sunup to sundown, labor hard, but there's a, uh, on the seventh day, the final day of the week, to commemorate and celebrate my creation. I want you to rest. I'm going to sanctify this day as a day of rest and worship. You know, we've kind of done that in the New Testament. I don't have time to get into all of that, but we still, I, I know that we still reverence, you know, remember the Bible said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, right? It's a sanctified day. Well, we do that with Sunday today and in our modern Christianity, and there's a reason for that, and I don't have time to get in it, but that's a day that still believers like yourself, we would sanctify that day, set it apart for God's purposes, and make it holy. We would set that apart as a day of worship, you come to church Sunday morning, I come to church. I come to church in the evening because that's the Lord's day, not the Lord's morning. So I come in the morning and the evening. The Bible says in Genesis, the morning and the evening were the first day. And so it's sanctified to the Lord for worship. But in between morning church and evening church, I take a good Baptist nap. Amen? Amen. So it's a day for rest and worship. Uh, it's set apart for God's purposes and God's use. Uh, another thing in the Bible, another item in the Bible is, is the tabernacle or the temple. They are called sanctuaries. There's that word, sanctified there. Uh, again, they were sanctuaries because they were set apart by God's presence for God's use. But did you know that in the Bible, this word doesn't have to be related to just religious activities? In fact, you'll find in Isaiah 13, 3, that God sanctified, he, he chose to use that word, God sanctified the Babylonian army for his purposes. Now, the Babylonians, they were not saved people. They were not believers in Jehovah God. They certainly weren't godly in their conduct at all. But God said, I've taken that army, that Babylonian army, and I've sanctified it. I have set it apart for my use. Uh, it's basically... This is the idea of taking someone or something and setting it apart from a common use and devoting it to a holy purpose. We talk about the, the Sabbath day. It's just another day in the week. But it's a day that God has chosen a common thing set aside for his purposes. Think about the tabernacle. You know what it was? It was just a big tent. Nothing fancy about it. But God took something common and ordinary and set it apart for his use. Now think about that. That's all I am. I mean, I want you to understand, God has taken clay and made man. So you know what that is? I mean, you can look around the room. You know what we are? We're just a bunch of dirt bags. That's all we are. And so God takes common people. Aren't you thankful for that? God must have loved common people because he made a lot of them. And he takes common, ordinary people like myself. I mean, my, my name is Michael Jones. It doesn't get much more common than that. I mean, if I was Spanish, I, I would be named Juan Hernandez. You know what I mean? I, I just common, ordinary people, and he sets them aside for his purposes and his use, and I'm thankful for that. In fact, I think I was thinking about this. Uh, the, the laver in the, outside the temple, if you remember, it was a bowl that was used for the high priest to wash in. And, and really, all it was was a bowl with water in it. But you couldn't just watch, walk up there and wash your armpits in it because it was a bowl with water in it set apart for the purposes of God. 
So really what we need to do is understand that God has set us apart for his purposes, common things for his purposes. But unfortunately, the Christian has become more and more like the world. Now listen, this isn't a difficult concept here. I'm not blowing your socks off with something you don't know. Godliness is to be more like God. Worldliness is to be more like the world. It's not that confusing, folks. And I don't understand why churches today seem to be terribly confused by this. If you are like the world, you are worldly. If you are like God, you are godly. And we are to be godly, not worldly. But in reality, the Christian should, rather than becoming more like the world, should be becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. So that's why I have defined tonight sanctification as the Christianization of the Christian. Now, some would say this. Here's what sanctification looks like. Some would say, well, it's dressing a certain way. I tell you, if you're a, if you're a Christian and you're a sanctified Christian, then this is how you're going to dress. And they define it certain ways. Man, your, your garments are this long and they're this flowing and they're this uh, whatever the case. Others would say, well, it's a certain haircut. I mean, it's a certain haircut. You know, Pastor Farinella was busting on Lamar's haircut. So his haircut is definitely not a sanctified haircut. His haircut is a sanctified haircut. And so you'd have Christians that would say things like this, that if you're going to be sanctified and a separated type Christian, then you're going to look this way. Uh, you're going to behave this way. But I would say to you, it's a whole lot more than just that. Uh, don't, by the way, listen, I don't care where you are from tonight, how long you've been saved. Don't get upset when somebody tries to apply biblical Christianity to practical living, okay? So, so even if you don't agree with somebody's lines that they've drawn, at least appreciate that they're drawing lines. Because, honestly, I grow weary of, of, of people who say, well, this is just truth, but I'm not going to define how that truth should be applied. Uh, so I hope I'm not digressing there. But I, I, I also want you to understand tonight that it's not just a series uh, of standards that some man has defined. Really, sanctification is a change in our attitude. It is a change in our attitude that then is going to result in a change in our ambitions. And hopefully, Lord willing, tonight I want to talk about those ambitions because I think tomorrow night the message is going to be so important of wrapping up revival because if we'll get tomorrow night's message... So, so if you can only come one night this week, come tomorrow night. It'll be a blessing to you. But, but it, it's an attitude that leads to a change in ambition that then results in a change in actions that helps us become more like Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about tonight. So as we come back to our text this evening, I want to give you three thoughts about sanctification. Three thoughts about sanctification. Number one, the means for sanctification is the truth. Look, look at verse 16. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So again, sanctification is the process of becoming less and less worldly. But how, do you, how does that process take place? I mean, what, what is this agent of change then? Well, you'll find here if in, in just a few verses, we read four verses, you're going to find that the word truth is used three times in this passage. And that indicates to us that this truth that he's speaking of it indicates that that is the vehicle for our sanctification. Now think about that tonight, because if Jesus is said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, here he says, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth, and truth is the vehicle and the agent of our sanctification. Understand that that is what Satan does to work against us. He uses lies. Remember what Jesus said about Satan? He said, he is a liar. Well, that's strong language. I mean, to put it in our vernacular, them's fighting words. 
mean, you ever, you ever somebody do that? You're a liar. You calling me a liar? I mean, man, if you like Westerns, anybody in here like Westerns? I mean, that's cause for a shootout in the street. And Jesus said, he said, Satan is a liar. Not only is he a liar, he is the father of lies. Now think about that tonight. That's a fantastic thing because the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Aren't you thankful for that? Man, I'm very thankful for that tonight. And I know a lot of people say, well, can a Christian be possessed of the devil? And can the devil do this? And can the devil do that? I'm going to say that again. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So do you know that really the only weapon the devil can use against you is a lie? Is a lie. And buddy, he is good at it. I mean, think about that tonight. I think there are a lot of people that have bought in this idea. Well, you can't know that you're saved. And just about every week of my life, I'll go out and I'll knock on doors and I'll, I'll say to somebody, hey, if, let me ask you a question. If you died today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? Do you know one of the most common answers I get is this right here? Nobody can know that. You can't know that. Can I tell you tonight? That's a lie. You can know that. You say, and it's not an arrogant, well, I know what you don't know. No, it's just simply believing what God said. And God cannot lie. And the Bible says, he who had promised us eternal life cannot lie. And so we, we, we can know that we're on our way to heaven. But the devil, he, he would sit on somebody's shoulder and say, you can't know that. That's impossible to know. And that's a lie. Man, you, you ever had the devil sit on your shoulder before and tell you this lie right here? There's no hope. You know, I want to be very sensitive here. You know, there are a lot of Christians that have bought into that lie. Do you know there have been times in my life I have believed that lie? I know this might, I'm just being transparent with you. There have been times in my life I've looked at my life, I thought, man, my ministry and my effect, I've been preaching and I felt like we we're going nowhere. The church wasn't doing anything. I felt like God wasn't using me and God wasn't blessing me and God wasn't helping me. And it was as if the devil was sitting on my shoulder and he was telling me there is no hope. But I want to tell you tonight that that's a lie. There is hope. Uh, wow, that was really, I want to tell you again tonight, there is hope. Amen. Yeah, I mean, man, I, I think, I think so many times we think, look, well, as long as somebody's breathing, then there's hope. Do you, do you know that even when people weren't breathing with Jesus, there was hope? Amen. I'm not trying to give you some kind of false assurance. I'm saying don't believe the lie of the devil. And I mean, the devil will tell people that nobody cares. Man, that's why I think it's so important to have a church family. Look around this room. There are a lot of people that care about each other in this room. I'll tell you, you can get to a place in your life where you think nobody cares. Nobody cares if I come and go. Nobody cares if I... But that's a lie of the devil. The devil will tell us lies like we've got to look out for number one. He'll tell people lies. He'll tell teenagers lies. Well, you know, it won't hurt anything if I try this or if I do that. It won't hurt anything. It won't matter. Oh, no, it will. And I'll tell you another lie that the devil tells people a lot of times is maybe later. Well, I'll get saved later, or I'll go to the altar later, or I'll get things right later, or I'll talk to them later, or, or, or I'll forgive later. Those are all lies of the devil. And I'm just telling you tonight that, that while the devil is working through his lies, God is working through his truth. He says again, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Just as wire conducts electricity to the light bulb, God's truth carries God's power to our lives. You think about that tonight. 
I don't know how, how I've gotten from point A to point B in a lot of ways, but it was just really this morning I got up and I read my Bible. And, 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 and uh, this evening I'm here in church. And, man, if you don't think that the preaching preaches to the preacher, I'll tell you, you're wrong. It does all the time to me. And I'm thinking, man, here's another dose of truth that I've taken. And, man, I listen to podcasts and sermons and, 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 and church service, and I'll read my Bible again in the morning. And, and it's as if the, the conduit of God's truth is just constantly flowing to you and having this sanctifying, changing effect in your life. Now think about this tonight. There are three components of his truth that provide a powerful weapon for the believer to be completely sanctified. One is Jesus' truth. I want you to think about that. Jesus' truth, that means he's a person I can love. Can I ask you tonight, do you love Jesus? I believe you do. I really believe you do. Do you love him? Anybody in here, is your heart ever grieved when you hear somebody take Jesus' name as a curse word? Yeah, why? Because you love him. In fact, we sing songs like that, Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. Jesus, there's just something about that name. He's a person that we love. I like the story Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said this. He said, I, I want to love Jesus so much that when I look up into heaven and I say, Jesus, I love you, I can hear him say to me, yes, Charles, I know. Jesus is a person that I can love, and Jesus is the truth. I want to say, secondly, a second agent of, of truth there, though, is the Bible is truth, and that's not just a person I can love in Jesus, but the Bible is a book I can learn. I don't know about you, but I love this book right here. There is nothing like this book. And I know we live in a generation as well, men wrote that book. Oh, they wrote it down, but no man could ever come up with this. And I'm telling you, this, this is an, an amazing book. I don't even have time to describe to you how fascinating. I mean, even just from a purely academic standpoint, this book will blow your socks off. Do you know one of my favorite books in the Bible, or my favorite book in the Bible, is the book of Romans. I love the book of Romans. If I had to pick one book in all the Bible, I'd pick the book of Romans. If I had to pick one chapter in all of the Bible, I'd pick Romans chapter 8. I think Romans chapter 8 is probably the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. Uh, uh, there was a preacher that, that I enjoy reading a little bit. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he, he was a very academic mind. And he wrote a commentary set on the book of Romans, and it's 16 volumes long. If you know anything about the book of Romans, you know that the book of Romans has 16 chapters, and you would think he wrote one volume for each chapter. Oh, no, he died before he could finish the volumes. He only got to about chapter 13. I, I'm, do you know what I'm trying to say to you tonight? This book is so deep, you will never, ever get to the bottom of its barrel. So all these people that want to worry about, well, what does the Bible mean, and why didn't the Bible tell us about that? If God told us everything he knows, it wouldn't be contained in any book like this. And you and I wouldn't be able to bring it to church. We certainly wouldn't be able to process it. God has given us more than we could ever uh, uh, try to comprehend right here in this. And this book right here has overwhelmed my life. It is a book I can learn. And I am constantly learning it all the time. I hope that every time you come to church, you're, you're refreshed with truth that you already knew but you are learning something you didn't know before. It is a phenomenal book, and it's the truth, and it's a, it's a truth that I can learn, a book I can learn. And then I would say this, the Spirit is truth. What do you mean by that, though? The Spirit is truth, and I would say it this way, that's a way I can live. 
Jesus is a person I can love, and the Bible is a book I can learn, and the Spirit is a way I can live. And I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit convicts our heart and works in us to be more like him. That's why, that's why people say, ah, oh, preacher, you, you're really stepping on my toes tonight. Oh, friend, I like what I heard an old country preacher say one time. Somebody told him that. said, preacher, you're really stepping on my toes. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't aiming for your toes. I was aiming for your heart. <laughs> Do you know when somebody's stepping on your toes? When the preacher's really getting with it and you think, man, he's talked out of all the people in this room, he's singling me out. I can't believe my wife has been telling him about me. No, that's the Holy Spirit working on your heart. You know, that when you open up your Bible and do your devotions in the morning, and, and man, one verse, you ever had this happen? I've read my Bible dozens of times uh, from cover to cover. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, there, there are times I've read a verse and I thought, man, I've never seen that before. And I maybe have read the book of John uh, 35 times covered uh, from chapter to end. And, and a verse jumps out and I think, I've never seen that before. And you know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit saying, here's a way you need to live. You ever been out in public and you said something, you did something, you thought, hmm, shouldn't have done that. The Holy Spirit's saying that's a way to live. You ever have felt a nudge and an urge? That's the Spirit telling us this is a way to live. You see, He does that through truth. So, if Jesus is a person I can love and the Bible is a book that I can learn and the Spirit gives us a way that we can live, let me give you this statement and I'll move on. Any experience, whether good or bad, that helps me love Jesus more, learn the Bible better, yield to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, is an experience of sanctification and it's a good thing in our life. So God expects us to love Him, to learn His Word and obey His Spirit, and that's how He sets us apart more and more for His glory. Number two. The mission for sanctification is to serve. So the means for sanctification is the truth. The mission for sanctification is to serve. Look at verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Do you know that many, again, view sanctification as an opportunity to show people how spiritually they are? And that's wrong. Uh, I was thinking of this as I was preparing for the sermon. It wasn't in my notes, it just made me think of it. I, I remember... Uh, can I get an amen for Chick-fil-A? Okay, amen. Yeah, I felt, felt, I felt spiritual right there. And, you know, we, one time my wife and I, especially when my, I mean, we still like to go to Chick-fil-A, but when my kids were much younger, we really liked to go to Chick-fil-A. First of all, because uh, it's good. Number two, because we could sit there and just send our kids into that playroom and we could actually converse with one another and kind of have a date even with the kids there. So we liked going to Chick-fil-A. And so all my kids were real little, little enough to play in the uh, uh, playground area. And uh, I, I remember my little daughter Mary, she's my youngest one, and uh, we spelled her name not M-A-R-Y like Mary, we spelled it M-E-R-R-Y like Merry Christmas. And it really fits her personality, you'd have to know my little Mary. And, uh, uh, but anyhow, she, she, we, 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 she was in a confrontation with another kid in the play area. And I remember here's what happened. Uh, you know, I, I, again, I don't want to be a Pharisee, and that's where I'm kind of going with this, but uh, we, we, but we do want to be Christians. And so I've taught my little girls, if you've got little girls, you ought to teach them too. We, we have tried to teach our little girls to be modest because we live in a very, very sensual and modest culture. You know this. And if you have daughters, especially teenage daughters, you know how difficult it is uh, to find the right kind of clothing that's modest and appropriate and, and, and not gaudy. <laughs> All right? I don't think you need to look like you're backwoods and you came out of, you know, 1932. Uh, uh, right? I mean, so, so any, anyhow, 
Uh, so so I, I remember my little girl, Mary, she's, this other little girl had some really, really short shorts on. And, and my, my little Mary, I mean, I, I literally, she's only like four years old. And she's like, we don't wear shorts like that. We go to Victory Baptist Church. <laughs> so I brought Mary over. I said, Mary, couldn't you have told her that we went to Grace Baptist Church? <laughs> You know, and, and I think, honestly, sometimes Christians, unfortunately, have that kind of attitude. They think because, again, they have these, my hair looks this way, and my clothes look this way, and my music is this way, and we go to Wooden Valley Baptist Church. You know, our church is better than your church because our church has standards, and your church doesn't have any. You know, and you kind of have that kind of attitude. And obviously, that's not Christ-like. In fact, there was a group in the Bible that was like that. Some of you thinking of their name right now? Pharisees, right? I mean, these guys, they did a lot of things that were good and right. I mean, Jesus praised them that they tithed. And, and he praised them for some of the things that they did. They kept the law. But remember, they, they tried to equate their own man-made traditions to God's law. And they really got out of whack. And they began to think that they were superior to everyone else. But do you understand what I'm saying to you tonight? Is that our sanctification is not an opportunity for us to show everybody else how spiritual we are. According to the Bible right here, our sanctification is an opportunity for us to serve people. So where'd you get that? Let's read it again. As thou hast sent me into this world, even so have I also sent them into the world. You see, his, they were sanctified in order to be sent out. So yes, we should be separated from sin, but we should be separated from sin so we can serve. Now think about that tonight. The purpose and goal of change is to become like Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus came to save us from the penalty of sin, but he also came to save us from the power of sin. So he redeemed us from a sinful heart that keeps us from being useful servants for him and for other people. Here's what he's saying in verse 18 there. He's saying that just as I was sent, Jesus was sent here by the Father to reveal the Father to us. Remember, remember that's what he said, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've come to show you who he is and what he's like so that you can see him in all of his fullness. Well, think about that. Why are we here? We are here not to, uh, uh, the same reason Jesus was. We are here to, send, to reveal the Son to the world in which we live. Jesus sought out sinners. We are sent to seek them out as well. You understand evangelism is not optional. It's not just for people who have the gift of it. It's for all of us. We are set apart for the purposes of God. And a gospel witness is at the heart of authentic godliness. Now, now think about this. Most Christians won't serve if there's any inconvenience to it. Like, he didn't tell me to say this. I'm not trying to harp on it. But your pastor last night asked for some help on Saturday to do some work around the church. Now, he did alienate probably three-fourths of the crowd by calling y'all a bunch of wimps and sissies and we don't need your help. Uh, but anyway, I think he was joking in a way to try and rouse as many people to get here as possible. It's an opportunity for you to serve. 
But you know, most people will serve if it's convenient. Does it work for my time schedule? Is it something I like to do? You, you, you know, I've had people say, I'm thinking right now, I had one lady, well, I'm thinking of two, two different uh, times. One time I had somebody came up to me, and this is what they said to me. They said, preacher, um, I need to talk to you. I said, yeah, she, this is what they said. I want to be in charge of something. I was like, oh, okay. No. <laughs> I had another lady. I remember one time she came up to me. She was really insistent. She said, now, preacher, listen, if there's anything you need me to do, I mean, anything, anything, you just tell me, because I want to do something around the church. So if there's anything you need me to do, I said, you know, come to think of it, there is. On the second story, we were having a hard time keeping those restrooms clean. And if you would just take it under yourself to clean every week those upstairs restrooms, that would be awesome. She said, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying is a lot of times we serve if it's something we like to do. So what would happen tonight if the preacher came to you and said, hey, listen, I really need, I really, really, really need some help in our children's ministry. And, and God put you on my heart. Would you serve in the children's ministry? You know, a lot of people would be like, no, I don't like kids. <laughs> well, can I tell you something? Let me, let me just say this. I mean this. I don't like hospitals. I hate them. I don't want to be put one in one. <laughs> I don't even like visiting them. But I'm a pastor. You say, why don't you like hospitals? Because I don't like that stuff. I, I was not, look, God did not design me to be a doctor. A medic. You know, these people that, that like blood and stuff, you're weird. I, I don't like that stuff. I, look, I mean, this might make you lose respect for me or whatnot, but, but I, I've always gotten woozy around those kind of things and you can call it mind over matter all you want but i've tried to put my mind over that matter and it ain't worked <laughs> bad grammar for emphasis i remember one time i was an assistant pastor the pastor sent me down there to visit somebody she had, had come out of surgery and they were I, I mean i wasn't there during the surgery i didn't watch the surgery i certainly didn't perform the surgery i, I just happened to be there when they were bringing her back in the room and there she is, she's in a bed, they got the sheets pulled up to her neck, and got a little IV thing over here, and the two, you couldn't see anything, and the nurse was there, and she was rolling the bed in, and, and I, was, I was right there, and the nurse, the nurse just said this, I remember she, she just said, now listen, if that catheter gets uncomfortable, now you push that buzzer and come get me. And I begin to think about catheter. <laughs> That's a tube going in your body. And you, you all laughing at me, but I remember, I, remember I, I, was, I was getting ready to pass. I really was getting ready to pass out. And I just said, well, let's, let's pray real quick. God help this lady and me. Amen. You know, I said, well, yeah, I'll check on you later. And I, I, I'm not joking. I went, out, I went out in the hallway, and I, I could see probably, probably to the back of the, from, from here to the back doors there, I could see a little lobby in that, ho in that hospital. And I remember putting my hand on that wall, and I thought, man, if I could just get to that lobby there, I could sit down in that chair. And I was kind of blacking out and getting off. And I finally made it to that lobby, and there was a chair, and I went to sit down in that chair, but I missed the chair, and I <laughs> fell on the ground. And when I did, I kind of stumbled back up into the seat, and I was sitting there, and this nurse had been down the other hall, and she was watching me. 
And she came running over to me when I stumbled. I don't know if she thought I was drunk or I was sick or something. She came up and she, she said, are you okay? I said, I don't feel good. <laughs> next thing I know, she, next thing I know she, she's coming up with these little, this little tiny can of pineapple juice. She's like, drink this. Put your head in between. And she had these forms. She was trying to admit me to the hospital. <laughs> I said, ma'am, I'm trying to get out of here. There is no way I'm staying in here. She said, I can't. She said, sir, I'm sorry. You're not well. I cannot. I cannot let you. I said, you bring me anything you, you want me to sign. I'm not suing this place. I just want out of this place. And you are not admitting me. She said, well, then you got to sign this paper. I said, well, show me where to sign because I can't see anything right now. <laughs> sign that thing. And I sat there for a sipping on that pineapple juice. Got up out of there as quick as I could. Now, over the years, I've gotten better at it. I can handle it a little bit better. But you know, my son's a chip off the old block. The other day, just, just about a couple months ago, they were driving, my wife told me, she called me. I was somewhere out preaching, and she called me. She said, man, your son is, is a chip off the old block. She said, listen, we were driving down the road, and the girls got to talking about having babies or something, and I was telling about an epidural. And I was telling about that big needle and that epidural, and Matt passed out in the back, back of the truck. He, was, he, he had his head hanging out the window. He said, y'all got to quit talking about this stuff. I said, so God takes somebody like me and says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go visit people in hospitals. Well, God, I don't like that. Do you know sometimes serving God is very inconvenient? It is. It's very inconvenient. Can, can I suggest to you tonight, especially some of you have a heart for ministry, do you know that God is going to put you in places that have problems? Now, I've not always liked that. Because, you know, I was kind of hoping when I graduated from Bible college that I was going to get a job making six figures a year. I was going to go to a church that ran a thousand, and that was on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And, and, and every member out of that thousand tithed and went soul winning and never complained about anything. But it doesn't work that way. Do you know God has put me in churches that have had problems? Sometimes lots of them. Because you know why? He sanctifies us to serve. He sanctifies us to serve. He puts us in places with people who have issues because He wants to help those people. He doesn't always send us to places of ease and comfort, but to places that have problems and need help. Why? Because that's the purpose of sanctification, to serve. Let me give you a last thought tonight. The model for sanctification is the Lord. Jesus is the perfect model of sanctification. Now I want to show you a confusing verse. You still got your Bible open? Look at verse 19. When I was studying this and reading this, I thought, what in the world does that mean? He says, and for their sakes I sanctify myself. Now why would Jesus need to be sanctified? You know, in my mind, I'm thinking, here we've been saying, the Christianization of the Christian. Becoming more like Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ. He can't become more perfect. He can't become less worldly and more godly. He's God in the flesh. So maybe your brain's already got this figured out, but I was looking at that thinking, that seems kind of strange to me. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Remember, the bottom line de definition of sanctification was God taking something 
we said common and ordinary. Jesus was anything but common and ordinary. But taking that object and setting it apart for his use. You know what Jesus was saying there? He was saying, for their sake, I have set myself apart to die on the cross for their sin. And in doing so, became the perfect example of a servant who was set apart for God's services. And what a great example he was. I think right now of the motley gang of group that we call the disciples. Bunch of fishermen, tax collector, a religious zealot, a hypocrite. Boy, he had a ragtag bunch of group of people. He still does. But I think of those guys. These guys are sitting around arguing about who's the best. I can see them sitting around a dinner table going, now, no, 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 think about it. Of all the followers of Jesus Christ, if we're going to make a Mount Rushmore of Christianity, I can see Peter starting this conversation. If we're going to have a Mount Rushmore of Christianity, you know I'm on that, right? <laughs> James and John said, you know we are too. I mean, we, 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 I mean, we go in there, somebody dis, I mean, disrespects Jesus. I mean, we call him th- lightning down from heaven. And that's where that all came from, James and John. Boom, strike. I feel that way sometimes. You can be glad I'm not God. You cross me. I mean, you, James and John were that way. Put us up on there. I mean, here they are sitting there arguing back and forth about who is the greatest. And while they're doing stuff like this, Jesus comes by with a towel and says, why y'all talking? Why don't you let me wash your feet? I'm going to show you how to serve. Because why y'all talking about how great you are? Let me show you what greatness really is. It's serving. You're such an example. Don't you love his example of how he could be forceful with things that were wrong? We see in places like Matthew 23 when he would rebuke the Pharisees. I mean, some of that language is really strong. But don't you love him when he turns around and in tenderness takes the adulterous woman and says, Hey, go and sin no more. He was the perfect balance between grace and truth. He was the perfect balance between holiness but yet practical service. He he was completely sanctified, but also notice this in his example. He was not a recluse. Unfortunately, many churches in the name of separation have instead of being separated, they've become isolated. And you will not find that in the example of Jesus. I think there are a lot of Christians that, oh, today's so bad and everything's so terrible in the world. And so they, 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 they don't want to go to, uh, I mean, public schools and they don't want to go to public ball games. And they, they, I mean, it's almost like, hey, let's just go to the hills and make a commune and grow our own tomatoes. Because the end of the world is coming. Well, I believe Jesus is coming again soon, which is all the reason why we should not isolate ourselves. Think about Jesus. You'll find Jesus attended weddings, social gatherings. You'll find Jesus showing up at funerals where people were. You'll find that he worshipped with others in the synagogue and even went to the temple. You'll find that his enemies called him gluttonous. They called him a drunkard and a friend with sinners. And we know that they were exaggerating, but the implication is this. 
He wasn't isolated from people. What I'm saying to you tonight is as a church, we have to have contact with our world without becoming contaminated by it. So it's kind of like, you know, growing up in the 80s, I, I remember when everybody was terrified of the AIDS epidemic. You remember that? And, and I remember Magic Johnson. I mean, they were terrified of him playing a basketball game. Didn't know if it could be transmitted through, through sweat. And then they were very, very, very cautious about blood, and rightfully so in some respects. But over time, we've kind of come to understand it a little more, but we're still scared of it. Not too long ago, I was visiting a hospital. A lady in our church whose mother died of AIDS. And I remember when I went in that hospital room. Before I could enter, they gave me some procedures I had to clean up and some things that I had to wear. And let me tell you, I mean, you're still kind of like, man, do I go over and hold this lady's hand? She's died. Do I touch her? Do I, what, do, what do I do in here? But you know, I, I did touch her, but I had gloves on. I did go in the room, but I had a covering on. What I'm saying is, you've got to come in contact with your world. But sanctification helps us to make sure that we're careful. You, you see, as our world gets crazier and crazier, like the Bible said it would, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. That doesn't mean that we should become more careless. It means we should be careful, but we should still come in contact. That's why I'm disturbed at modern day Christianity in America that wants to become more and more like the world in an attempt to reach the world. Jesus is our example, and Jesus did not do that. In order to make a difference, you've got to be different. Am I making sense tonight? Uh, that's why there's two different ideas. Do we have a church that, where God is comfortable or do we have a church where the lost people are comfortable? Listen, I want lost people to come into our church and feel welcome. I want them to be comfortable in the fact that the temperature's reasonable. I don't preach for three hours to lost people. In fact, I don't do that to Christian people. Somebody's saying, it feels like it tonight. Now, I, I, you, you, you understand, I'm not talking about comfortable that way, but my, our services are not geared to lost people. You know what I think most lost people think? Man, if I'm going to go hear a rock band, I'm going to go hear a real one. Not some B-minus Christian group in some backwoods <laughs> church with 100 people. Maybe that's just my own opinion, I don't know. I think if you're going to make a difference, you've got to be different. And Jesus was our example in that. Jesus ate with sinners, but he never acted like one. Jesus ate with sinners, but he, he, never, he, he never condoned any. He never encouraged them in their sin. In fact, the Bible, and I'm done with this, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You ever heard somebody say this? Well, I'm, I'm watching my weight. When we say we're watching your weight, and I know some of you are saying, yeah, I'm watching it going in, and I, I, I know that joke, but... But when we talk about watching our weight, what we're saying is basically this. I'm making no provision for fattening foods lest I put the weight thereon, thereof. And I think we need to do that spiritually too. We need to be concerned about living flesh free as some people are about living fat free. So why, why are you preaching this tonight? Well, it's a sermon for some reason God laid on my heart. 
Because I, I really do believe that in some respects, if we say we want to have revival, you know what revival we could encapsulate? I know there's so many ways we could define revival. But don't you think we could define revival this way? We had a special meeting to help us be a little more like Jesus. So let me ask you this question. If you were to take a survey of your life, answer this question. How are you progressing in your sanctification? Let's put it this way. Am I living a life distinctively Christian in my appearance and conduct? Am I gradually conforming to worldly philosophies and practices? I think this is a great question. Is there something wholesome and distinctive that sets me apart? I have a friend of mine who likes to play golf. I like to play golf too. He's a preacher. He was paired up with somebody he didn't know and he wanted to witness to him. About five or six holes in, he was mustering the courage to talk to him about the Lord. And before he could, the person he was playing with said, let me ask you something, you a preacher? And my friend said, well, yeah, I, I, I actually am, and I was just about to invite you to church. Why did you ask me if I was a preacher? He said, because somebody that plays golf as bad as you do and doesn't cuss has got to be a preacher. <laughs> Is there something wholesome about you in your office, in your factory, in your classroom? Is there something distinctive about you? I mean, what if your classmates found out you were a Christian? Would they say, you are? Or would they say, of course you are? How can we assess our sanctification? Three final questions. How connected am I to the Word? Did you read your Bible today? When you get up in the morning, you're going to read it again? Thursday, you're going to read it? Friday? How connected are you to the Word? Because that is an agent of your sanctification. Truth is the means by which we are sanctified. Number two, am I a witness to the lost? Who did you invite to this meeting? Did you invite anybody? How many cars did you leave behind at a restaurant or at a gas station? Did you, did you pass one out, at least one to a coworker or a classmate? Did you go across the street to a neighbor? Because you've been sanctified to serve. Are you a witness to the lost? Here's the follow-up question to that. Am I a servant to the saints? Every member of this church ought to be a minister in some respect. Do you sing in the choir? Do you serve in the nursery? Do you help in the sound? What do you do? You should be doing something to serve other people. Do you write encouraging notes? Do, 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 you, do you make visits and calls? What, what are you doing to serve the people of this church? Too many people walk into a church and say, what are you going to do for me? That's not how, why Jesus sanctified us. Not at all. Final question. Have I modeled my life after Jesus' pattern of sanctification? Am I trying to become like him? He came, not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He, he, he left heaven in all its glory and became poor that we might be made rich. Am I modeling after him? Heavenly Father, thanks for letting me preach. I hope I made sense tonight, and I hope I've done a good job communicating your truth. And I